during that 10 year period, I'd been going to all these really dry symbio conferences. It's like the only creative in the room, feeling very isolated, feeling like, what the hell am I doing here? But knowing that this field is going to yield the products of the future. I have no doubt as a designer, like I can just see the potential for all of this. Hey, Carl, how's it going? Good. How are you, Iram? I'm doing well. I'm in high spirits. I went to a cacao ceremony last night. Yeah. What is that exactly? It's a celebration of earth and nature. It's started with the Amazonians and worked its way up to the Mayans and the Aztecs to celebrate cacao first and foremost, the cocoa seeds and how it's a nourishing drink and it's a heart opening drink and has all these different properties that they had recognized because of the way that they felt after they drank it. And it was like the coffee of its time. People drank it in the morning they drank it regularly. And then they had a ceremony to appreciate that and then also to appreciate earth and how cacao grows from earth. My friend who hosted the ceremony also wanted to celebrate the spring equinox, which happened a couple of days ago. And she's having a baby soon, any day now. So that was another reason. And also the intentions that we have for this year, now that it's spring and it's a different beginning. So it was very beautiful. It got me in the right mindset and reset things for me. That sounds awesome. You said we hit the spring equinox just a couple of days ago. It's always good to just be aware when the seasons change. So I'm excited for the spring. A spring weather can be a little maddening in New York City because you don't really know whether it's going to be cold or warm or wet or dry. Today, it's going to be like a dry overcast day, but the temperature could drop 25 degrees in a minute. <laughs> it's great that you did the ceremony. I wish I could do some kind of ceremony like that. It's interesting because you celebrated spring with this ceremony. And I think the world or the US is celebrating with all this news about AI while all these things are going on in the banking system. And I'm just like, it's really hard to keep up with all the AI news. You posted a comment the other day about how it feels like the beginning of the internet all over again. Yeah, yeah. I started feeling a mixture of anxious and I was really high strung because I just kept on seeing all of these reports and announcements. This was last week. So it was when GPT-4 was announced and all of these other announcements that were overshadowing announcements of so Microsoft, Google. And this week is NVIDIA's conference and they are like the AI masters. They built all the infrastructure to have AI software running. And it was a lot. Exciting though, especially for the biotech and healthcare industries when we're talking about it had taken 20 years to develop a drug, but it could maybe take a matter of months or not many months, maybe years, because you still have to do a lot of clinical trials. But it was amazing to see how fast the technology is accelerating for biotechnology and how AI can influence it throughout the whole life cycle from discovery to the efficacy of a drug in a human. They didn't mention like the symbio world and how that's going to affect the development of materials and food and ag. Not that I've seen so far. I mean, AI is not our industry per se. It's going to be commonplace throughout and pervasive, just like the internet was or is, <laughs> still is. But we don't talk about the internet anymore. It's just the way the world is. So 
as you said, this is the beginning and it is exciting to see how all these companies are responding and integrating. And I am seeing Google is starting to make little changes. Even as we speak, I just I noticed that some of the icons are different. So the feels different. I've been using a Google doc. It's acting a little differently and it's going to be interesting. Let's just say that. It's interesting to watch for us in the communication space. It will be very transformative. One of the things that I say to the team is the biggest issue that AI solves for you or us is it eliminates blank page syndrome. That is the inability to write something when you have a blank page in front of you. I do not think that it will replace our skill set. It makes it easier to write. And the reason I say it won't replace our skill set is because we're working with a lot of early stage technology companies that are still defining what their story is. And that story isn't something that ChatGPT is going to understand. That said, I have always looked forward to having a AI writing companion that would help me. And we're seeing those kinds of tools being integrated by Microsoft and by Google. So I'm excited to see those tools come on board. I'm glad you say that because I feel like other people who they look at our companies and other marketing companies, and there are AI marketing companies now. There's Jasper AI there that are drafting press releases and things of that nature. And really, it's a matter of the data that they can access. You're talking about if they don't have any data about this emerging technology and its potential influence on the market, because a lot of that is envisioning something that doesn't exist. I don't know. I'm just not sure we haven't necessarily used GPT for that. We have used it a little bit. We have used it with some press releases and stuff. And again, for the blank page syndrome and to reduce our work time from like two hours to 30 minutes, which has been great. And then you mentioned the applications of AI in, in biotech. And that's a perfect segue into our episode today, because one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is how AI would be used for biomaterials design. And really at the atomic level, not just at the, like, how do you make a piece of material look beautiful, but how do you create new materials using the building blocks of life. Nature has given us this tremendously awesome palette of materials and plants and animals all over the world. And as we sequence and get to understand those better, how do you combine them in ways that allow us to create materials that aren't in nature? So I'm super excited that we're about to have this conversation with Suzanne Lee, the founder of Biofabricate, to talk about Biofabricate. And I've known Suzanne for going on 10 years, I actually attended the first Biofabricate conference in New York in 2014, which seems crazy because it does seem like it was yesterday. And it was one of these conferences where every single speaker was someone who you, at least I was just completely blown away by. And then one of the things that happened that I will never forget was it was impossible to leave the meeting. Like the meeting ended at six. I don't think we were out of the building until nine o'clock because every time I would take a step forward to get to the exit, I'd run into someone that I wanted to talk to and we'd have a conversation. Suzanne has done an amazing job creating this biofabricate community, and I'm excited about the conversation we're having with her. Yes, same here. She's very engaging conversationalist. Everyone's in for a treat. So let's get it started. All right, Suzanne, welcome to the Grow Everything podcast. We're so thrilled to have you. Hi, it's great to be here. For people who don't know you, we will do a little bit of an introduction, but we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Suzanne before you got into biomaterials. 
you were a designer, as I understand it, but what kind of designer were you and what made you interested in design? So I was a fashion designer, worked in the fashion industry in London, so worked as a women's wear designer on and off for actually about 20 years. So just always interested in design as a child. I was always very creative good at art, terrible at science. So the, it's the ultimate irony to me that I ended up working in biotech, but just loved fashion, loved making things and had a real appreciation for textiles and manufacturing. Wow. So is there any particular item that you designed that you remember that you're very proud of? Gosh, that's a good question. Are you talking commercially or in my own sort of research? No, just your own. What, yeah. What's something notable? Two things. Like when I think back to my time as a student, so as an undergrad, I was already super interested in material science. So I created garments that had liquid inside or were inflatable or that could be like temporary habitats. So I was always interested in things that could transform and do other things. And then my graduate research was actually all based on what we now know as the metaverse, but we're talking, this was like 1996, and I was interested in, what if we could create clothing from fire? Wow. <laughs> oh, so wow. like thinking about virtual reality, thinking my, my kind of graduate thesis was on the early kind of thinking around living in a digital space and what that might mean for fashion. My kind of life story is about being 20 years ahead of the curve in everything I do. And made this transition, if I can say it that way, to biotech or biomaterials. How did that come about? What was your interest? And in? I know Paul Fremont, who's been on this podcast, was a part of that. Tell us that story. So I was a science fiction fan as a child. Like I've always loved sci-fi and reading about what the future might look and feel like. So that was always an inspiration. And in the early 2000s, I got the opportunity to write my own book about the future of the fashion industry, but very much kind of future focused. So I had lots of conversations with people outside of fashion. So a lot of scientists, engineers, technologists, asking them like, what are the materials that we're developing today or the manufacturing processes that might eventually end up in the fashion industry. And the most interesting, the kind of light bulb conversation was one I had with a biologist, Dr. David Hepworth. We met in an art gallery just randomly. And I said, I'm interested in what fashion is going to look like in 50 years time. And he was the one who said to me, this is 2002, <laughs> rather than thinking about growing a plant like cotton in a field or raising an animal for its skin or using petrochemicals to make a material, we might grow a material with microbes. And so we had this amazing exchange. And I was like, are you telling me that I could at some point grow a dress in a vat of liquid? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. That's how nature does it. And so that was the moment that changed everything for me. And then that's when we got some UK government funding to collaborate together. And that's when I coined this term biocouture to explain the coming together of biology and fashion. And then once I really got into that field, I wanted to try and understand how could we further design and engineer the microbe so that it could do more of the creative things that I'm looking for it to do. And that's how I met Paul Fremont at Imperial. What was the first textile that you created and how did it come about now that you 
were inspired to use biology? That came through that conversation with David, where my question back to him was like, when we talk about microbes, like how could we do that? quickly what's the easiest way of doing it and so that's when he introduced me to bacterial cellulose and he said if we just use something like a kombucha recipe we can probably start to produce a material because it forms this essentially this layer of cellulose on a liquid using static fermentation so that was how that came about really it was just saying okay let's see what we can grow let's see what this process might look like so that's how we started in 2003 that's amazing because who even knew what kombucha was in 2003 <laughs> yeah and then i spent 10 years really hating kombucha so the minute we started collaborating every surface was covered in containers growing a sheet of material and if you've been around that level of fermentation, you know that it smells very vinegary. So people would come to my studio at the time and they would be craving fish and chips because the smell of vinegar is so strong. And of course, in, in the UK, we like to douse our fish and chips with vinegar. So it was quite entertaining. So, you know, someone Googles Suzanne Lee and they do an image search, what they're going to find is these pictures of you in your studio. And they're also going to find these leather jackets that you made from this material. What was that process like? Like you said, you worked on this for 10 years. How long was it before you were able to actually manufacture something that seemed like a leather jacket? Oh, I mean, within months. Oh, amazing. Yeah, we made many things. I guess one of my biggest regrets is that we didn't document more of those experiments because we did so many things. It started with sort of small swatches and I was doing all kinds of things like dyeing them, creating composites by putting other textiles in, seeing what can you put in the growth bath to actually grow and integrate into the material. So there was a ton of experiments. And then we made jackets, we made a shoe, we made bags. We tried all kinds of products. And to be honest, what you can manufacture out of that material is not really a difficult bit in a way. The challenge with that whole project, and still today for the people who are subsequently growing those materials, is doing it in an affordable way, in a scalable way, and at the right price, right? As with so much else in biotech. So are you saying that those materials could be produced today in a way that, let's say, would make sense for a couture where you're doing one-offs that are tend to be very costly? The process was expensive because there's a lot of labor involved, and there's no existing way to scale up giant trays of fermenting cellulose, right? You basically got to design a facility to do that. So all of that is what makes it expensive. But cellulose, obviously, as a material is usually very cheap. It's a commodity fiber. So if you're going to produce it through a fermentation method, that's what you're competing with. It's interesting to me because like, if you imagine a conversation in fashion 20 years ago, and talking to my friends in the industry back then about bacteria, and growing clothing, they all thought I was off my rocker. They thought I was completely <laughs> mad, that I'd lost it. And same goes for some of the brands and investors. Anyone you spoke to about the future will be grown, the future of fashion will be grown with biotechnology. That was just too far out there for most people. And also, if you think about sustainability in fashion, like that whole real provocation for we need to do things differently had yet to be understood. So again, it's 20 years before 
the rest of the industry realized we need to rethink how we source raw materials and how we manufacture things with a lower carbon footprint and so on. The greatest innovators are always thought to be crazy. Let's <laughs> think of that as a compliment when you think of yourself as being crazy. But so you were doing this for 10 years. Were you doing this with the intention of starting a company and you realized kind of the challenges or were you doing it for pure experimentation? Where was your mind then and what was your end goal? Yeah, that's a good question. It started out very much as a sort of pure research project. And the research question was, could we grow materials for the fashion industry? And when we started, we didn't fully understand just how much it would address a lot of the sustainability challenges. So this is a process that uses almost no land, very little water, and what you are using can be recycled You've got waste streams as an input. So it ticked a lot of boxes as we went along in the project. We realized, actually, this is like an incredibly efficient way to not only produce a fiber, but for the fiber to self-assemble into a sheet of material. And then if you can further program that microbe, then we can control color and maybe all kinds of performance qualities. So the learning happened as we went along. And I did have a lot of press coverage at the time. Those prototypes were featured in galleries and museums around the world. They were in books. It got a lot of interest because, of course, it was such a kind of seemingly crazy idea. Right. Then we started to explore, like by talking to early investors and talking to some fashion brands. But that kind of R&D landscape for fashion was very different back then. Investors that we have today, they didn't really exist. And the fashion brands back then certainly weren't putting money into that kind of R&D. It was a real struggle. I spent about 10 years half in the fashion industry with my day job and then trying to get this thing off the ground. And then just finally realized it's just going to be super challenging from an economic point of view to use this process to grow materials. The case for it back then was hard to make. And that's why it's 20 years later, it's now that this is already coming together and we're starting to see multiple startups doing that same process. But then what was the path from working in fashion, you're doing these experiments and creating these kombucha bespoke items and, and experimenting with bacterial cellulose. What was the path to starting Biofabricate? What was the idea and how did that come about? Through that 10 years of research, then I started to just get more broadly interested in any kind of living system, discovering things like mycelium and algae and like different platforms for how you can take a cell and grow something. And so then I started to hear of other innovators. So I remember it was about 2008, 2009, when I first heard about Eben and Gavin at Ecovative over here in New York. I heard about Dan Widmeyer at Bolt Threads, which wasn't even called Bolt Threads. It was refactored materials back then. These were people who were also thinking about the future will be grown, but using different kinds of organisms. And then during that 10-year period, I'd been going to all these really dry symbio conferences. It's like the only creative in the room feeling very isolated, feeling like, what the hell am I doing here? But knowing that this field is going to yield the products of the future. I have no doubt as a designer, like I can just see 
the potential for all of this. So why aren't designers, like why aren't brands at this event? But also those events were quite painful as a creative without the science background. It was just like so much of it went over my head. So I was like, oh, I wish someone would just create an event that brought all these disparate communities together like the scientists with the creatives with brands with investors and like no one was doing it so then that's how biofabricate came about i was like what the hell let's try to create a meeting and just invite all of these amazing people we know and see what happens yeah i was talking to you so in our emails you corrected me because i thought the first biofabricate conference took place in 2017 it actually took place in 2014 and i can't remember how i ended up there, but I'm very glad I did. I think that was the first time you and I met. I remember about that conference besides just being in this room of people that were so different than the biotech people I was normally around. And I'd been to conferences where I'd look around at all these guys in blue and gray suits and I'd be like, wait, I didn't sign up for this. So just the fresh airness of the crowd was amazing. And then the other thing that I remember was when it was over, it took two and a half hours to leave. Like no one wanted to leave. There was this energy in the room of people just wanting to continue the conversations. And I met so many people who have become friends over the years, but it was like one of those really special events that I will never forget. So for you, Suzanne, you know, who you're about to celebrate 10 years of doing Biofabricate, how has it changed? How has it gone from 2014 to what you've got planned for this year? That's a good question. I think we still have that same core focus, which is we want to bring the creatives with the science together. And it's very much consumer focused, right? So we don't touch things like fuel or pharma or food. It came out of my the fashion background. Now, of course, we've broadened. So we're also interested in things like materials for architecture and construction. We're interested in ingredients that could transform personal care. Those all seem very synergistic. The focus is still very much bio-innovation and what are the real creative things that we can do when we design with biology. What's happened over that 10-year period is that we've gone from, I don't know if you recall, in 2014, we had our very first design lab. And it was a series of tables with, in many cases, little tiny swatches of material or like a petri dish with this tiny thing in it or literally test tubes and flasks because everything was so experimental and just off someone's bench. Here we are in 2023 and we've got things like, I can go and buy a hoodie from Pangaea, which is made with a biological dye from Colorifics. I can go and buy a Stella McCartney handbag, which is grown with mycelium instead of animal leather. That 10-year period has gone from being very conceptual or early prototypes to finally we're starting to see the product of biology actually reach the market. So that's that's an amazing 10-year period. But we're still just at the beginning as well. Yeah, I think it's really amazing. Like you were saying, science conferences are dry. Design conferences or fashion conferences are very exciting. So now you have met the two together. And that's why I feel like there's an air of excitement because you have two industries being exposed to the other. And I think that's been very exciting. I attended by Fabricate this past year. And I was blown away looking at all the different, not only materials, and you're saying from there's also the personal care and the architecture, then there's 
people thinking about materials in outer space. When you have people working with NASA, thinking of how do we send materials to terraform other planets, my mind exploded. Like you were saying, Carl, it was two hours after that first event where people were still talking. I was still talking about it a week later. I just felt like there was so much to unpack for me personally and so many connections that I made. And so I'm really excited about what you have in store for this year. I believe this year you'll be having it in Paris. Any glimpses you can give us? Anything you want to share with us? Yeah, just the fact that we're doing it in Paris is a real indicator of where the field is at, right? Because we've we've been doing it in New York for most of the time. And I think America has been very much at the forefront of a lot of the science in this space. But now that we're moving into market applications and so many of the early applications being fashion or beauty related, it just felt like it really made sense to go to the real epicenter of luxury fashion and beauty, which of course is Paris. We really have moved towards engaging with those brands and those big like European luxury investors. It's very strategic on our part to go to where that world is and further expose people to what is possible when we build with biology. Now, would you say that the fashion industry needs a biotech? makeover? We know that there are sustainability issues. How does biotech impact that? I'm not sure I'd frame it quite as a biotech makeover, but for sure, I think that we're at the beginning of showing the fashion and beauty industries that there is enormous potential when you can work with biology to do things like reduce carbon and water footprint. There's a kind of resource efficiency piece of it. But the more exciting piece, I think, as a designer is the new functionality and the new aesthetic opportunities that come when we can design and manufacture in this way. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of win-wins there. And Suzanne, I'll have to say that you're definitely an icon in this biomaterial space. I'm sure a lot of designers now that they're becoming more woke about what's going on with the biomaterial space, that they want to reach out to you. I'm sure they might ask you for advice or even join their teams. Can you tell us about what type of brands are really excited about this? Have you been approached by designers? What's been your position in the industry now? Obviously, after I walked away from my own biocature work, then I went to Modern Meadows. I got headhunted off the back of all of that to join Modern Meadow. So I joined Modern Meadow in 2014 and I was there for five years as their chief creative officer. So that was an enormous learning journey for me to actually be probably the first, I don't know, designer in a biotech company, full-time building out a design function alongside synthetic biology, material science, and so on. And so at Modern Meadow, It was interesting to see even then, like 2014, we were being called by the very best brands in the world, every designer you can imagine, all the big sport brands, all the big automotive brands. Like this is not new. That was happening almost 10 years ago as people started to hear about, like I had a TED talk, our founder, Andras had a TED talk. Like it was not secret what might be possible. And that has just continued ever since. So probably some of the biggest interest has come from the European luxury groups, right? People like Caring, who own 
brands like Gucci and Balenciaga, they were always very early in their interest in the space. Adidas also did many collaborations with companies. So yeah, lots of household names have been increasingly interested in this space and now putting money into R&D through relationships with startups. Yeah. And now there's like whole new generations of kids who are coming from design backgrounds who are like, I want to work in like biomaterials, biotech. How do I get into that? Which is great because that's then being triggered in academic programs. We're starting to see people teaching design and biology in art schools, which is just amazing to me now. That's amazing. I remember that when John Cumbers and I interviewed you for What's Your Bio Strategy, you said that the hardest position to fill was the designer biotechnologist or the biotechnologist designer. Do you think that's still the case? Certainly got better because we now have some good programs emerging. You've got Central St. Martins in the UK. You've got RISD have their wonderful nature lab. Parsons have the healthy materials library. There are definitely places you can go and study to learn more about the field now. In terms of people who've got experience, there's still very few, right? People like myself or who've worked in a biotech company, there's still just a handful of experienced people, but it is, of course, it's growing year on year. Biodesign Challenge is another great way that people are coming through. So yeah, it's really growing rapidly, I would say at this point. Here's a two-part question. One is, What's the most common question that you get? And two is, what do you think the biggest challenges are for these biomaterials companies? Yeah, good questions. From the fashion side, the most common question we get is, which is the best biomaterial for us to use? People want a very black and white answer, and there is no black and white answer. It's dependent on many things. So unfortunately, we can't be simple in the way that people would like us to be. I think the next most common question is, when can we get it? And like, why can't I buy it yet? And that comes from both designers and consumers. Fashion isn't known for its patience. Uh, Fashion brands are used to working with suppliers and like calling them up and saying, hey, can you just change that, tweak this? Can we try something new here? And then they get something new back in a matter of weeks. And so because it's based on existing yarns or chemistries or whatever that have had, they've had years of being scaled and become sophisticated. But that's not how biology works. It's not how research in this field works. This is measured in years, not weeks. A lot of what we find is that people get very frustrated. They don't understand, like, why does it take so long? Why can't we have it now? Why is it so expensive? Like a million questions. I can certainly relate to that because my background's in the pharmaceutical world and it takes 20 years to develop a drug. There is a lot that goes into that. That is something you're ingesting to aid a disease, but in the material space, I can understand that there is a lot that is required to build a product that has the performance characteristics that you're looking for. And I'm sure that you've seen so many things that are out there now because you have all these connections, you're seeing all these companies, but is there a super material that you would like to see hit the market? I know you're a dreamer. You dream up a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Now that you know what's possible with today's technology, okay, let's let's think about with today's technology, what material would you like to see hit the market? Oh God, I wish I'd thought more about this before covered on. I've just been writing about how the spider silk Fibers have evolved over time. Companies in this space were working on protein fibers that mimic what a spider can produce. 
Obviously, we have early examples of that from people like Spiber in Japan, who are able to produce quite an advanced material, but none of them yet really have those sort of sci-fi properties of spider silk, which is sort of super lightweight, very stretchy, hugely strong. It's just the beginning of that. So I'm still excited for how can we bring in some of those performance proteins. If you think about like a flea and the way that jumps and the elastin that enables it to do that, can we synthesize those proteins that actually capture all of that functionality into performance yarns that we've never had access to before. I think that kind of next level of functionality is what excites me, along with the ability to build in things like color so that we don't have to do multiple processes. Can we program the production of color with that protein? Can we build multiple functionalities there? And then I guess if we dream further, it would be living materials, right? Right now we're growing materials, but then killing off the organism in the final product. But what happens when we actually end up with a living material that's somehow symbiotic with us or our microbiome? I think that gets super interesting. Yeah. Do you think that we need to have those kinds of, or at least be thinking about those as we deal with the changing climate? There's a huge opportunity there, I think, as we think around our own health, the health of the environment around us. I just met recently at Bio, Spaz from Numa Bio, I think, who are looking at creating living fibers, photosynthetic fibers that sequester CO2. The biomaterials space is part of the climate tech space, right? Because we're looking at significantly reducing emissions. And if there is a way to do that with biology, one of the most exciting areas for me is like people like Lanzatech who are able to feed the biology with carbon emissions to produce a high value ingredient or a material. That gets super interesting because we're solving two problems in one. That is very powerful. And I look forward to more of those products made in that way. Yeah, same here. The most common thing ever since I did the TED talk is that I've had everyone around the world offer to help in the waterproofing of the material. Like, I think it's like the biggest myth of my life, which is that Suzanne stopped doing biocouture because she couldn't fix the hydrophilicity or the water attracting qualities of bacterial cellulose. And it came out of an aside that I said as part of that TED talk, which was just a kind of joke. I didn't know that Ted were going to put that in the talk. Yeah. Ever since then, like the last 10 years, anyone that I encounter, they're like, oh, I have an idea for you. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> actually, that wasn't the real problem. The real problem was the fashion industry doesn't get the need for it yet. And no one wanted to invest. And it felt like at that time, it was going to be too expensive to manufacture it. It was about the innovation, finding the right time, much more than anything really trivial, like putting a waterproofing coating on it. So that, yeah, that's the one question that I'm, I'm still like, every time someone asks me about the project, I'm like, it's not about the waterproofing. It's about the economics. <laughs> that's so funny. That's very interesting. I think one of the things that you were touching on was that there's a lot of things coming in the pipeline. You read a lot of sci-fi. I'm sure you're still interested in sci-fi. 
helps you think about the future. It helps us think about the future. Is there any particular book or movie or anything that has inspired you or that you enjoy or can recommend to our audience to read, whether it's about biomaterials or biotechnology? Okay, my favorite sci-fi film happens to be Blade Runner, still Mm -hmm. the original Blade Runner. And if anyone's watched that film, there is a scene in that where we see this synthetic snake skin, which is all part of the plot. But that, I was obsessed with that for the longest time. This idea that we could create the skin of an animal synthetically, that was what made me excited about Modern Meadow originally. It was like, can we grow an animal tissue for fashion in the lab so Blade Runner has a special place in my heart it's just one of those kind of epic sci-fi films that also touches on things like symbio um in terms of book I'm going to give you like a I, I don't know if you know this already but we're actually working on our own book which is going to come Ooh. out in the next few months which Exciting. is a little black book on Ooh. biomaterials so that's a sort of early plug for something which I think We're writing with the intention of anyone that's just trying to learn about this space because there isn't a book just on biomaterials as they exist today. So it's another one of those, oh, there's no conference. Oh, there's no book on this. We better create it. So that's one of the projects that we're doing right now. And I look forward to sharing that with your audience as we get a bit closer to launching it. Yeah, we'll definitely have you on after we read it and then we can do like a, a book, book club. club with just to make author. sure it's okay er, a book club with the <laughs> author yeah exactly yeah yeah if it's if the book sucks i'm like oh no never mind no i'm sure it'll be great <laughs> i'm sure it'll be great i'm really interested in it if it's anything like biofabricate i think this like the inspiration that i gotten from the conference carl and i always come up with a million different startups like we have a whole long list and materials is one of them for sure. And so we can talk to you about that next time we hang out. Can I ask you guys a question? What would you like to see at Biofabricate the Summit this year? Ooh, mm. That's a hard question because I feel like the people that you get that come, I always learn so much from them. People who I think normally we might not consider to be a part of the space, bringing them together because I think that convergence is where creativity and innovation happens. Iran, <laughs> what do you think? One word space (laughs) everything (laughs) the reason i say space is because clearly there's other technologies that come out of thinking that way was the the agency that was working with nasa that came to biofabricate this year red house red house studio yeah architect they of course have to think about like how to get things to different planets but they have built other materials that can be used here on earth that's why i really like that exercise of thinking of going to outer space. And even this isn't, again, this is from the podcast and for us when we go out and grab some coffee or drinks, there's the idea of terraforming different planets, but there are like spaces in on earth that could use some terraforming. And what does that look like on a material side, building infrastructure, whether it's living materials through algae or mycelium as well, which is what a red house used to make mm-hmm. some building blocks. It's like super strong, but super lightweight. So I think things like that, I like it because it just, it makes you exercise your imagination, which you do all the time. But I think for everyone that tends, it's a great exercise to do it that way. I love that. I'm going to think more on it just for you, (laughs) Aram. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) On the other side, making sure we don't have waste, but then also like making materials to, so that we adapt to maybe a different type of climate or now there's like a lot of invasive species. So here in New York, we have the lanternfly. If you can just gather all the lanternflies and make a material out of them, 
or use them for some type of resource, <laughs> let's do that. There you I'm go. done with those lantern flies. I'm done with them. And they have a nice red color. So maybe there's something you can do. It makes murderers of all of us, doesn't it? As we go around squashing them. Yeah, right. I know. I, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Thank you, Suzanne, so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We're looking forward to having you back very soon. Oh, thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate the questions and the chance to share the story with everyone. Wow, that was a great episode. Suzanne just confirms that she is super cool. I knew she was a Blade Runner fan. Blade Runner is also one of my favorite movies. It's for sure in the top five. And I could talk to Suzanne all day and for many days because she's such an engaging person and her knowledge is incredible. I would love to talk to her more about the space side of things. And I'm sure her conversations with these companies, as she thinks about having them at Biofabricate, she asked them about what they're working on, what their vision is, because she wants to make sure that she's hosting a very intellectually provoking conference. And I would love to be in that room, but I can be when we go to Biofabricate. So um, we, I, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you've been at Biofabricate and we actually had dinner with Suzanne and Michael of Lanzatech not too long ago. Yeah, that was really cool. I only regret is we didn't get a photo. That's the world we live in where nothing really happens unless you take a picture of it. So I don't know if it happened. Maybe that was a dream because it was like before Landa Tech went public and it was at a cool place. I forget. What was that again in Brooklyn? It's the Ace Hotel in Brooklyn. Yeah. And they have a restaurant like, there called As You Are. Yeah, oh, yeah. That was really nice. It was just very memorable. And again, engaging conversationalist. Suzanne is the best. I feel very blessed that we can speak with her. I mean, because she is a very larger than life personality when you see her on stage. And when I came back into the industry, I went to Biofabricate as my first things to be re-indoctrinated <laughs> into biotechnology. And I see her on stage. She has great sense of style, very intelligent, very intimidating, actually, if you don't know her. But once you get to know her, she's super fun, very friendly, as you had a chance to experience in this episode. So I would love to talk to her again very soon. Yeah. So Suzanne and Biofabricate are very much in demand. And it's hard to talk to her at the Biofabricate conference. We're lucky. I joked around that we are the Brooklyn Biotech Mafia, and we all live <laughs> within two or three miles of each other. Suzanne's one of those people. Our friend Sabria Stukes of Indie Bio is one. Julie Wolf, the investor. Amanda Parks of Pangaea. We all live just in a small circle here in Brooklyn. So it's nice, and we should make more of an effort to hang out with each other. It would be great to do like just small, intimate gatherings of, of us and maybe 10 or 15 other people so we could workshop ideas. And I would love to see how we run with this idea of applying AI to biofabrication and biomaterials. Yeah, that, but we can also do a cacao ceremony <laughs> with all of us. <laughs> I think it's really important because it's like nature and the future because you're setting intentions, but before you do the intention, you're thinking and being at one with mother earth. It'd be great for biofabricated something. And probably not with, I don't know how many people show up, like 300 people. That might be a little too weird. It gets in a kind of weird cultish territory, but with 20 people and we're just chilling. We all trust each other. We know each other. It might be fun. 
Anyway, as an aside. And if I left any people out, as soon as I said the number of people who are like the Brooklyn Biotech Mafia, I could think of another 10 people immediately. So if I left you out, don't feel neglected because I love you. One of the things that was interesting too was uh, her talk about fiber and the future of spider silk. There's a number of companies that have worked in that space and continue to work in that space. And that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to biomaterials, because like, for example, we've had the Polybion brothers on here talking about the use of waste as a resource for creating a new form of leather. We were just at TomTex in Brooklyn. They use chitin from shrimp and ocean waste to create another kind of biomaterial that we won't call leather. And as we start to get better at that, but then we also plug it into AI, we're going to just be blown away by the materials we see. Yeah, we're going to have to keep an eye out for which companies are starting to incorporate it. And they probably are in some capacity, but we don't necessarily dig too deep into their software part of the business. So this is a question that we should start asking our clients and our future clients. How are you incorporating AI into your workflow or your discovery for methodology? And it'd be good to see how much it accelerates business. The NVIDIA conference, there's just so many different tools and tasks that their software or their platform, they are essentially creating like the AWS for AI, the tools that are a bit more accessible to developers and some end applications as well. That's um, cool. Yeah, I have a whole rundown that you and I can talk about offline because we only have so much time in this podcast to nerd out. So, right. Well, uh, okay, so let's just shut this one down. I think that's the pod. <laughs> I think I'm excited for Suzanne's book and the other projects she and her team are doing because it's great for people who don't know anything about biofabrication. And I know the interest continues to grow exponentially as it should. Thank you for listening. Thank you for making us the fastest growing biotech podcast in the universe. We continue to get great feedback from people and we're always open to getting your ideas, your comments. We love you. And we do this because we love doing it. Absolutely. Remember to look at the show notes, people. There is more of an adventure once you start digging into the world of Grow Everything. And we're excited to hear from you. Thank you so much. It's a wrap. 